because what a two-year-old needs to know about the natural world around them versus a five-year-old, a seven-year-old, a teenager, they're all vastly different. And sadly, a lot of outdoor centers and other places, they have their own approach, which is wonderful, but we're not really coordinating with one another to figure out, you know, are there some things that we can line up and make sure that every kid has at that age? Bert Hoare would call them affordances. The land is always affording opportunities to teach and to learn from if we just open our eyes and ears and senses to, to see. Hello, and welcome to the Earthy Chats podcast, where we're cross-pollinating environmental education ideas. I'm one of your hosts, Jade Harvey Beryl. I'm joining you as the Outreach and Events Manager for the Columbia Basin Environmental Education Network, or CBEAM, and the Outdoor Learning Store, which is your one-stop shop for outdoor learning, equipment and resources. I also run Stoked on Science. It's an environmental education and consultancy business based in the interior mountains of BC. And I'm your other host, Ian Shanahan, the general editor of Green Teacher an environmental education charity that produces a quarterly magazine, books, webinars, PD, and the podcast, Talking with Green Teachers. Let's get started. Go outside, take your family, take your kids. Just find a place to plunk down. Open up all your senses. Smell deeply. What is the smell of this place? Reach down and grab some soil. Feel to your face. What's that soil smell like? Listen to the natural sounds around you. Can you distinguish those different sounds between the oaks, the maples, the whatever trees are there? Does, does your place have a taste? Can you taste it out of your tongue? Can you taste the water? Activate all your senses at the same time so you feel, you literally feel that you're part of that place. Hello and welcome to this edition of Earthy Chats. We've got a special treat for you today. Joining us is Jacob Rodenberg. He's an award-winning educator, executive director of Camp Kawatha, which is also an award-winning summer camp and outdoor education centre. He's an instructor in environmental education at Trent University, has 30 years experience teaching outdoors, including a master's in education. He's known as a nature sommelier and has taught more than 100,000 students. Jacob is co-author of The Big Book of Nature Activities and his new book, The Book of Nature Connection. Jacob lives in Peterborough, Ontario, and welcome to the podcast. Well, how nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Okay, so first I have to ask, what is a nature sommelier? Yeah, the magic question. Yeah, I just, I love that because I worked in restaurants in my youth and I took some wine sommelier training with some French people and I was just thinking of like tasting and spitting out nature because that's, we tasted and we spat out the wine. So <laughs> it feels a little incongruent to me. So can you explain a little bit what that is? I spat a little bit of nature out when bugs have landed in my mouth. That's right. Yeah, midges. <laughs> but no, I was trying to get at the fact that to appreciate nature more, we need to practice drinking it all in. And I was using the term sommelier because someone who studies wine, they engage all their senses. So they'll pick up a glass of wine and they'll smell it. And they'll use all kinds of words to describe that sensory experience. You know, it might be ruby red. The smell might be earthy and lush. The taste, the feel might be spicy and racy. You know, it might feel structured and, and, and muscular on the tongue. So I argue that we spend so much time in front of computers these days, looking at the world squeezed in two dimensions. It's almost like the rest of our senses have been dulled, kind of sensory anesthesia. 
But by opening up all our senses mindfully, practicing that, then I think we can appreciate nature more. And if we appreciate nature more, maybe we'll care for it more. That's my hope. I mean, perfect description. And I'm, I'm imagining it. I can, it's, it, it, you, you know, you give a visceral nature to that experience and having been in there, I mean, as a, as a lover of superlatives, like I love any descriptive word I can. I love <laughs> all of that. So that makes an enormous amount of sense. And if you read the book of nature connection, you can see, and we'll talk about that more, how those things tie in. So that's beautiful. So can you share a little bit more about your own relationship with the outdoors? You know, Ian and I have talked about ours in previous episodes, but I came late to this. You know, was it always a part of your life? I think so. I was lucky enough to grow up next to a conservation area. And in a way, I was a wild child. My parents would just let me go. And off I would romp and explore. Nice. So you might see me shinning up a white pine and swaying in the uppermost branches. And luckily, my parents would say, be careful, hon. You know, they wouldn't say, get down here, go inside. Or I might be, one of my favorite things today was swamp walking and just feeling the bubbles of methane rise. One time I was skating on a pond nearby and, and I fell right up to my neck and it was cold and I ran home to stay warm. And my dad said, what, what that happened to you? And I, I said, I fell through. And, and he said, oh, just be careful next time. So the point is my parents gave me permission to explore, to romp, to discover. And, and that's a magical thing. I think that's a huge barrier sometimes as our society has shifted to sort of risk analysis and the potential as well for things like litigation or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. My parents both grew up like that and then were a bit more scared for us and we were in a slightly more urban environment. But I try and be really careful with the language I use when I'm out with students mm-hmm. to still give them that permission to make their own choices and to build their own awareness and understanding of limits and their own personal but as a British person where the ponds don't freeze or they haven't since the little ice age in like the sort of 1700s the idea of like skating on ponds like many of my Canadian friends do is terrifying and I'm all like getting the measurement out and seeing how thick it is and doing a sort of investigation before I'll even step foot but it sounds like a beautiful way to grow up. Yeah, it was. And we tried to give that to our own children here. But it's funny, we let our kids play in a park next door and we'd watch them through the window, but neighbors would knock on our door and say, hey, your kid's unattended. You know, and speaking about risk tolerance, everyone says, oh, you know, being outside is dangerous, but we do tolerate a fair amount of risk. We allow people to drive in cars and there's about a one in 80 chance we'll get into a car accident or there's a maybe a one in 10 chance we'll fall downstairs sometimes in our lives, but we tolerate stairs and cars and we should be more tolerant when it comes to giving kids experiences in nature because that is their right. That's an important part of childhood. And I feel like it's being withdrawn. That's what Richard Louv argues in his book. He wants kids to encounter vitamin N, vitamin nature. Yes, he calls it the last child in the wood, the nature deficit disorder. And I think we need to do everything we can to go beyond that. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, amen. So you're in Ontario. Have you always been there? Have you traveled a bit? I mean, Ontario is a huge place. My parents are from Holland, and I am too. So I'm, I'm an immigrant in a sense, even though I came over when I was three. But uh, most of the time I lived in Ontario, but I've done a bit of traveling. I'd like to do more. As I get older, it's a big world. I'd love to see it before I get too old and <laughs> decrepit. I think it's just 
like coming to Canada, like there's just so much diversity within small yes. spaces. Like a couple of hours south of me, you're into this sort of grassland and desert environment. And I just think there's so much to be learnt just from this one country. But yes, it's a um, huge country with so many beautiful yes. habitats and things to explore. We are very lucky. So you've published, and the way you speak is clearly from a place of, of deep experience, but you've published articles and books. You completed a Master's of Education. You teach at university level. And then, you know, you're running this summer camp, an outdoor ed center. I mean, firstly, is there anything that you don't do? And where did you start? And I mean, of course, it's a big question, but I'm, I'm wondering what this work is to you. Is this just your own exploration or is this the passion or how did you get where you are? Yeah, I'd say it's a lifelong passion. There's many things I don't do. I don't do line dancing. I probably should learn it to do that. I don't do interpretive dance. It'd be nice to do interpretive dance. And then the more I learn about nature, the more I realize I really know nothing about nature because it's so big, so common, so wonderful. Uh, so true. So, but yeah, I feel like people are not treating the natural world well. I mean, we all know that. Since the 1970s, we've lost 50% of our biodiversity half of all of life's, you know, that's very sad. And to realize, I think part of that comes, even climate change, I can account for that by our broken relationship with nature. One of the single most important things we can do is to repair people's relationships to the natural systems that nourish and sustain us. And we can do that by just going outside repeatedly and using the language of relationship. So when you have a relationship with someone, it takes intention and mindfulness and hard work and reciprocity. All of those things apply to having a positive relationship with a natural space, with the world right around you. And if you have massive expanses of pavement, it's hard to do that. But the answer is, and I really believe this, not sustainability, because that term implies a steady state. We need to have a more powerful word, one that goes beyond sustainability. And I would posit that word is regenerative, that we can bring nature back to the spaces where we live. We can create nature-rich backyards, natural corridors. And the more we do that, the more we encounter nature, uh, the more we'll love it and care it for it, and, and the less damage we'll do to it, including, you know, hurting it through climate change. That's, yeah, I agree with all of that. I'm just processing for a moment. It sounds like you need to get into urban planning. We need people like that with that mindset in the way that we design because our population is still increasing, right? And we do have to provide a habitat for humans as well. We need shelter and we need effectively space, food and water. I'm seeing so many things about, you know, soil degradation and availability of, of fresh, clean drinking water, of which many indigenous populations in Canada still don't have access to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that regenerative point is huge because we have just sort of for the last 200 years said, okay, this is what we need. We need, we take, we take. And there is the capacity to give back. Yeah. And I think that's a huge mindset shift into that we respect the gifts and then we give back rather than just in a, a one-sided direction. Yeah. And if you look at the environmental movement, often it's focused on mitigating harm, which is important, but we don't often really show what good looks like. And so that's why, you know, I'm proud of our Environment Center, which is one of Canada's most sustainable buildings. It was a field, and then we put up a building, and it harvests water from the footprint it's on. But there's way more nature in and around the center now than there was before we built the building, showing that people and nature can share the same space so that both can thrive. And kids need to bear witness to these ways of living that are just different and inspiring. 
We're, we're not giving kids enough inspiration, I don't think. I just watched a documentary called The Biggest Littlest Farm. Or Biggest. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Did you guys watch that? Yeah. 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 People kept recommending it to me. And I, and then it sort of, you know, they, it starts off with this sort of devastating scene of wildfires threatening their livestock. And then you look at this effectively barren landscape that they bought. And everyone was telling them, don't buy this to farm. You know, like it's dead. It's The soil yeah. was dead. And they had this beautiful man who was all about biological farming and reconnecting with nature's natural cycles the difference i mean if you haven't seen it i'm not going to spoil it but my gosh and the amount of wildlife that they attracted to this sanctuary and so i'm a massive fan of what you're doing and even in my yard which is grass the grass is going to disappear and it's going to become a pollinator garden that's yeah. that's what's about to happen oh, i listened to this amazing webinar with the guy that runs the ubc um royal botanical gardens about all the different types of pollinator plants you need and all the different stages and it just blew my mind so i think there are people who care and, and the more people that read sort of your books i feel like it inspires educators and that actually brings me to so it's award-winning but the big book of nature activities which we have on the store we also have we're launching the book of nature connection too in the next months here so the big book of nature activities was co-authored with naturalist june monkman i use this book so much not firstly because it's got this i mean you're here so I'm a bit like fangirl <laughs> but you know firstly it does this really beautiful conceptualizing and contextualizing of like what's going to happen and why you do it and then it's these beautiful seasonal adventures that allow this inquiry and and repeated like you say repeated visitations and understanding of the environment and how it changes over time it's been incredibly important for me in my work but how did that book come about it was there like who approached who or yeah, I've known Drew for years and I've always admired him because he's one of those last really in-depth pure-blooded naturalists. So going for 100 meters with Drew might take you an hour. I love it. <laughs> That's an Ian walk for sure as yeah. well. <laughs> I worked with his daughter actually my first summer as a naturalist. So there, there's a little connection there. Sophie or? Julia. Yeah, great. Yeah. Oh, Julia, yeah, yeah, the eldest daughter. So, and I always think Drew because he knows so much, his, his way of knowing is deeper than many of us because most of us abdicate our knowing to devices because we don't have to remember it. We can just look it up. We can look it up and, in, in a second or two. But because he studied this, he studied seasonal change, he knows the dragonflies and the butterflies and the different kinds of bugs and the birds. For him, every footfall is a journey of amazement and wonder. And I think we need to bring some of that back and we were hoping that if people know a little bit more what to expect when they go for a walk, then maybe they're more likely to experience it. And, you know, the average kid might name 100 corporate logos. It would be hard-pressed to, to name even just a few different plant species or animal species. And that's a sad thing. You know, a walk in the forest is, is a green smear, a wall of sound. It, it really don't know much about it, except it looks green and there's a lot of noise going on in nature. Beginning to distinguish between, oh, the, the robin that says, cheer up, charity, cheer up. And, um, you know, the cardinal, cheer, cheer, party, party, party. It just helps them to resolve all the cool things going on in nature and appreciate them more. 
couldn't agree more. We do, we spend a lot of time, we have lots of black cap chickadees here. Yeah. And uh, I teach them all the different, the chickadee, dee, dee, dee. Mm -hmm. And the more D's there are, the more, more warning that yeah. they're, 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 uh, they're communicating. And I say that could be us that they're yeah. nervous about, or maybe some, some animals around we have to keep an eye out for. Or the sweetie, yeah. sweetie of the mating in spring. Yeah. And then we do the cheeseburger. Yeah. And I say that's like the chickadee's happy dance. And yeah. so at the end of my sessions, they're wandering in, singing cheeseburger and doing a happy dance. And I think... My life is complete. One of those children, you know, yeah. can recognize that and notices. Yeah. And once they notice it, then they'll pay attention to it in the future. We sometimes do this activity called homesing the leaf. And what I do is invite everyone to grab a little leaf that's around them. And then I say, hey, you remember Sherlock Holmes, that famous detective, right? Well, Watson would always ask Sherlock, hey, Sherlock, how is it that you were able to figure out that mystery? How did you know? And Holmes would reply, my dear Watson, you see, but you do not notice. And my apologies for the English accent. Oh, that was good. Was beautiful. I loved it. I loved it. It was excellent. And so then, you know, in that vein, we say, look at your leaf and make the following statement. I noticed that. Oh, I noticed that my leaf is one color on one side, another color on the other side. I notice the edges are, are jagged or serrated. I notice it ends at a point. I notice the stem, instead of being round, is, is sort of squarish. And the next thing after that is you say, well, I wonder. Because if you think about it, curiosity is the engine of learning. So mm -hmm. I wonder, I wonder why my leaf is green. I wonder why the veins are more pronounced on the underside of the leaf. I wonder why the leaf is shaped the way it is. For every one of those wonder questions, there is an answer. And every question posed is an invitation to find out more. And if you can encourage that, the last part of the sequence is it reminds me of, oh, that leaf reminds me of the fact that it's going to eventually die, but it's going to help make the soil rich. It reminds me of the color green. It's, there's so many different shades of green. So that sequence is beautiful because it focuses on observation and encourages wonder, and then it builds relationships between things. So try that with a rock or a stick or a leaf or anything. I literally just wrote it down. I mean, I utilize those concepts, but I'm sitting here thinking about it. But I always, it reminds me of the leaves, the veins and on the bottom of my palm as well. And so I think that we are nature. That's a, a massive one I get from that. But that I'm going to post it note that I think on my computer and remind me to look out of the window right. when I get bogged down in work as well and, and go outside. So thank you. In the book of Nature Connection, I invite people to look at the wrinkles in their hands and to find a branch that exactly matches that so that you feel you're more tree-like than you know. Like that. Hello, listeners. This is Ian. I'm just here to let you know about the Talking with Green Teachers podcast, produced by Green Teacher. If you don't know who Green Teacher is, we are a registered charity in Canada serving environmental educators in Canada, the U.S., and overseas. For only $32 a year, you can subscribe to our quarterly magazine, which has been running in North America since 1991. All proceeds go back into the organization to help us enhance environmental literacy among young learners. For more information, check out greenteacher.com. You can find Talking with Green Teachers wherever you get your podcasts. In the Book of Nature Connection, I really like how you get into the science behind the senses and why things are the way they are. And 
Can you give us just a brief glimpse of some of that science and then your process about doing that research? Because I think that just adds so much because it's not just use your senses, this is great. It shows the why behind it. Yeah, I mean, the senses are our way of literally making sense of the world around us. <laughs> right. <laughs> we were born with way more capacity than we'd ever believe and that computers can't compete with. Like you're born with surround sound. You can hear in three dimensions. Mm. And the beautiful thing about that is in a computer, the sound looks like it just comes from the computer. But when you're outside, you're hearing a bird from over there, a dog from over there, a tree rustling from over there. And it, it's pretty marvelous. With seeing, you know, packed in the back of your eyes are six million cones. You can distinguish literally three to four million different shades of color. And, and even you've got stereoscopic vision, which you can see in three dimensions. You don't believe me, you take your Two fingers, try that right now, stretch them way in front of you, close one eye, make sure one eye is closed and see if you can touch those fingers in front of you. A little hard to do. And that's because when your both eyes are open, you're seeing things at a slightly different angle, which gives it depth. A rabbit or a deer would have its eyes on the side of its head so it can see all the way around. But something like a raptor or us, we have the vision of a predator. And even just having those Mesner's corpuscles, little nerve endings and the fingertips here where we're designed to feel pressure, to feel heat, to touch the world around us. Smell, one of our most ancient senses, is directly connected to our memory. The latest research suggests we can literally smell billions of distinct odors. So when we're hunched over a computer, we're only activating our sense of smell and that's our sense of sorry, sight. And that is squeezed into two dimensions. A little bit of hearing, but that's only coming from the computer. There's so many other senses we have to drink the world in. Let's activate them. And when we do that, I'm going to just suggest something here. I wonder if all of us maybe feel more alone, kids especially, mm. because they've lost that connection with nature and, and they've lost the feeling of belonging to something bigger than ourselves. Do you find that with that science being laid out so well in the book and laid out as well as you just laid it out there, that educators then have better justification for engaging the senses? Like, do you think understanding the why is that extra push they need to try to incorporate as many senses as they can into their educational practices? Yeah, absolutely. The more that we understand how the senses work and, and the role they play in helping us to deepen our connection to nature, the more I think teachers will be, want to take kids outside, parents will want to take kids outside, because who doesn't want to connect their kids to, to the natural world? And if, if they should, if they don't, they, they should. Anyway, um, yes, the short answer to that question is important. And, and that's why I built it into the book. And you've certainly done a lot of work in connecting people to the natural world through the pathway to stewardship and kinship, which is this environmental framework for children of all ages. And you've been working with multiple stakeholders to implement it. Can you give us a brief overview of that initiative? Yeah, sure. Well, the organization I work with is called Camp Kawartha, and it runs an outdoor ed center, an environment center, a summer camp. But our mission statement is to foster stewardship. Ironically, our First Nation friends don't like that term mm. because for them, it has overtones of dominion. Mm. And that's why we added the word kinship. Kinship means, you know, the natural world is part of my family and, and I'm just one part of it. Stewardship is in the curriculum. It's commonly used phrase. So that's why we have both terms. But I think we mean it more in a kinship sense. Right. But really, if you want to foster a steward for tomorrow, whose responsibility is that? 
and we felt, well, we can't do it alone. Surely it takes a village. And if that's the case, then can we coordinate our efforts so every child from the time they're born, the time they graduate from high school, have age-appropriate stewardship experiences? Because what a two-year-old needs to know about the natural world around them versus a five-year-old, a seven-year-old, a teenager, they're all vastly different. So what we ended up doing was getting some money to do some research, and then we figured out what we felt and what the research told us were some of the most experiences every child needs throughout their development, and we created the pathway, and those experiences are called landmarks. So for little kids, it might be opening up your senses. For slightly older kids, it might be exploring. For slightly older kids, it's getting involved in rehabilitation projects. But it's carefully thought through. And the hope is that if we all do that together, we're more likely to raise engaged stewards. And does this framework inform your writing as well? Yeah, I think so. I'm keenly aware as someone who struggled in school and was constantly restless, <laughs> you know, the more I was outside playing, interacting, the happier I was. And if that's the case for me, it must be the case for others too. And really, it comes down to Ashby's Law, which says, if you want to hit a variety of learners, you teach in a variety of ways. Yeah, differentiation. And noise. At Trent University. Oh, no, jump, go ahead. No, sorry. I was just thinking about noise, about sensory overload in classrooms. Yeah. And the, the fact that noise bounces off of walls and magnifies in a, in a closed space. Mm. Whereas for me, a lot of... I was one of them and the kids who have more energy or are more outspoken or have expressed themselves more intensely than the outdoors becomes this place where they don't have to be told to be quiet all the time. Yes. The, the exuberant child. Yes, exuberant. Yes. It's yes, a good it word. It must be fostered. <laughs> there, there's so much value in that. But yes, it sort of gets uh, taught out of children. They're taught to be compliant, to sit still and to listen and regurgitate. Yeah, we teach a lot of things out of people. I certainly see that with my one-year-old son. I mean, he's perfectly comfortable outside, and I'm just afraid that that could be educated out of him going through, you know, the regular public education system. So it's innate. It's just a matter of making sure we don't put the barriers. And there are a lot of teachers out there doing good work and oh, yeah. trying their oh, yeah. very best. But we know this, that the more we take kids outside and get them engaged with the natural surroundings, the more I think they'll want to protect it, the happier they'll be. I mean, just simply breathing in forest air has been shown to boost our immunity. Seeing yeah, the color sides. green, yeah, that's right, boosts our serotonin levels, the feel-good hormone. You know, kids are active outside, they come back in, they focus better, they cooperate better. So maybe it's just a question of also teaching teachers the value of outdoor learning from a health perspective. Working on that one with the, mm. with the, with the store and with the pro that we're doing and the people we're connecting with. Totally agree. Yeah. Yeah. So in your work with Trent University, you have spearheaded the Eco Mentor Certificate Program for teacher candidates. And that has gone on to be adopted by several other universities. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so my colleague, Dr. Paul Elliott, he was doing teacher education. And we always knew that Trent was good at environment and environmental studies, environmental science. It had a teacher's program, but it wasn't doing a whole lot when it came to environmental education. And one of the reasons we built our little environment center right next to Trent was to make connections with the university and with the teacher's college. Right. So we thought, well, maybe we could start a course 
but it turns out that costs a lot of money and it's very difficult. <laughs> yeah. So instead we thought, well, we'll work outside the system. So we offered a program where student teachers could take it for free. We put on workshops, a whole series of them. And then when they graduate from those workshops and show that they can implement some of the things they learn in their workshop in their practice teaching, then they get a certificate from Trent University and from Camp Kawartha attesting the fact that they know about environmental education and they want to bring that to their future school. And yeah, it's been successful with lots of people that have enrolled. And more recently, we were doing a national online version, which sounds a little ironic, isn't it? You can connect with people who are more remote that might not have had a, the ability to be there in person anyway. Yeah. It's surprising how many faculties of education don't have environmental education. So again, the same model, a series of workshops put on by different professors from around the country, and then a certificate at the end showing that they have achieved those workshops and are using some of that in their practice, which I think is cool. And we have one also for early childhood educators that we're doing at Fleming College. Nice. What other universities have jumped on board with it? I see Brock University has done a version of this. Um, Boise has done a version of this. And they all have their own take on it. Yeah. I think one other one, even up in Thunder Bay, Lakehead, they were doing something. That's cool. But the international, the, or so the national one, what's nice about that is in one course, you can reach people from the east, the west, the north. And we were piloting in 100 spaces, but over 250 people wanted to join in. It's the appetite's there. I bet. And I figure if you can inspire student teachers, then you can affect a lot of change. Absolutely. No question. Yeah, that's it. I just presented at the BC Teachers Federation New Teachers Conference. And just let's, there's so much enthusiasm and so much joy from people coming into their life as a teacher. And so I saw a lot of really promising and magical energy that i hope uh, can continue on and into the nature could be sustained by the nature that's right that's the whole thing <laughs> i think it, it does get sort of exhausting for them but when they're fresh and they're full of energy light them and vigor just now's the time absolutely all of the resources featured in this podcast plus many more for students and educators alike can be found online at the outdoor learning store Visit www.outdoorlearningstore.ca to view what's on offer. From waterproof notepads to binoculars and dip nets to sit pads, the store has you covered to take your learning outside. In addition, there are educator resource books to help you take your outdoor education to the highest level. That's www.outdoorlearningstore.ca. We're Canada's non-profit resource store. We are the Columbia Basin Environmental Education Network, or CBEAN. You can visit our website at cbeen.ca. We are the regional network for environmental education in the Columbia Basin, supporting a community of engaged and effective environmental educators by connecting them to resources, information, professional development and networking opportunities. So, as the exec director of Camp Kawatha, are you still boots on the ground or are you just behind the scenes? I mean, it sounds like you're doing an enormous amount of research and writing. You know, are you still face-to-face with kids at all? That's one of the greatest struggles I face is I'm often hunched behind a computer trying to convince people how important it is to get outside. As, as an executive director, I spend a lot of my money, the time finding money to make money. Money, yes. 
and you know, developing programs and partnerships. And I like that, but I do miss connecting with kids, taking them outside. I do it occasionally, but maybe not enough. How many kids come to camp? So in any one year, this is a non-pandemic year because things have been a bit skewed, but it'd be about 17,000 a year if you think of all the different programs we do. Yeah, so it's a busy place. Not all at once. No, no, that would be intense. It's a music <laughs> festival, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Each of you yeah. has a job. You could build a whole city. Come look at this wildflower. Just don't step on it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah, I had like 300 kids in my summer camp program last summer. It was like, woo, and I'm like, that's next level. And what ages is that? What's your age range there? Yeah, so for everything we do, so we have a little forest kindergarten, a little kinder camp, and then leadership programs. So really three to 17. That's amazing. Yeah. And I see, like you were talking about with the stewardship and kinship, different age-appropriate programming and how that looks and building that relationship that that develops over time. That's a massive part of, I think, you know, what Ian's doing as a parent and what I do as an educator in in attempting to Mm -hmm. build this in deep into the core, into the center of themselves and myself. And it's a constant learning journey so that it's not just a one-off, that these are things that, that move with them. And sadly, a lot of outdoor centers and other places, they have their own approach, which is wonderful, but we're not really coordinating with one another to figure out, you know, are there some things that we can line up and make sure that every kid has at that age? So it was an attempt to begin to do that. I love it. And, you know, some people outside of the education world, you know, dislike the word pedagogy or, Mm -hmm. you know, or curriculum, but I don't see them as dirty words. I really enjoy, and, and as a scientist, like I really enjoy being able to create something that can be replicated and something that is controlled in terms of making sure that everybody has access to it. So I'm, yeah. I'm a big believer that we can do that. In a sense of building, right? Absolutely. Not that you must do this and this and then you'll get your tick mark, but that a certain amount of time outside yeah. every day. Like yeah. if we could mandate that, then, then we know for sure that they're getting that little serotonin boost, that we know that they're having to move their bodies for a certain amount of period of time mm-hmm. every day for sure, because you have to move out there and... Yeah, I don't know. And there's a, something I feel is really important is that our brains are hardwired to listen to stories. That's how knowledge has been transmitted throughout thousands of years and throughout mm-hmm. history. And sometimes well-meaning educators, they feel like nature is a list. Oh, you know, there's a red-eyed vireo over here. And look, there's an evening primrose over there. And come on, let's go over here. Really, you have to think about what is on the landscape as characters, and that we mm-hmm. need to get to know those characters. We need to get to know their story. And their story is deeper than a name. A name is just a beginning. But it's, you know, hey, that cedar tree, which um, it's called the tree of life because you can make a tea that's rich in vitamin C. And it's been used in many cultures for thousands of years. And it's the home to many different kinds of insects. So the more we tell stories about the landscape we're on and also who occupy the land before us and who will occupy the land in the future, I think the more kids will understand that they are part of a story of the unfolding of land and they have a responsibility for hopefully making their time on that piece of land a bit better and not worse. That's beautiful. I definitely used to over-program and script things to to within an inch of its oh, life. me too. And now we go out and we just investigate. Megan Zinni, who's an outdoor learning consultant based in BC, calls it the reverse 
plan. So you go out with an open, empty sheet yeah. and then you something inspires you. I mean, we did one where we where a bird's nest had fallen out of a tree and, and firstly we tried to look for the animals, we tried to look for eggs and see, and then we did this whole day, like a full day outside on, on bird's nests and, and, you know, creating homes and, and the relationships in the forest. Yeah. It's the most magical thing ever. That's wonderful. So you're letting the land do the teaching. And mm. Bert Hoare would call them affordances. The land is always affording opportunities to teach and to learn from if we, we just open our eyes and ears and senses to, to see. And, and kids are born explorers too. They, they love to explore. One of my favorite activities is exploration dice, or I have a couple of wooden blocks on, on the faces I put directions. On the other wooden block, I put numbers, it might be five, 10, 15, 20. And we roll the dice and it might say Northwest 20. So we turn toward the Northwest of the compass and we take 20 steps and then we hunker down. And invariably we'll find something interesting, a spider's web, a hole in the ground, a chewed leaf. We roll the dice again and it'll just bounce us around the landscape to places we never would have gotten to. And there's always discoveries to be made. And the underlying lesson is that every footfall, there's something amazing awaits if you just open your eyes. That's so magical. I love that. The things you say, you know, I, I see myself out there in that space and it's quite it's simple though, right? Yeah. You're not asking them to have a bunch of stuff and you've got to have this and no. that. It's just this, the way that they're, they're in that environment. Yeah, and, and really using all of your senses. So one of my favorite things is something called sathuricism, which is a word I love to say, and you can say that at a cocktail party and look wise. <laughs> Sathuricist is someone who can kind of recognize the sound the wind makes through a tree. So they might say, oh, the white pine, that's a white pine just by closing their eyes. So that's, a, that's an oak, that's a maple. But you can tune into the wind songs, what the wind does, it plays through the branches of the tree. Each has a unique tone. The orchestra of wind. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful. And just taking a little Dixie cup and making smell cocktails, which Steve Van Mater used to do. But yeah, it's amazing how many scents are out there. Uh, and that's not a, a sense we use very much, our sense of smell. But throw a little bit of earth in with a few leaves, with you know some moss. And here's an important point. Often we're reluctant to have kids pick or touch anything in nature because we don't want to damage it. But nature is not a museum. And if we want kids to really interact fully with it, we have to let them touch and feel and borrow a bit. I always take some wildflower seeds with me. And if we take a little bit from here and a little bit from there, we, we try to give something back. In fact, our operating motto is give more than we take. But, you know, it's, it's lovely to be able to have that feeling of giving back, of sprinkling wildflower seeds or planting a tree. That's a beautiful image. I like that. Giving back more than you take. If we all asked ourselves that at the end of each day, maybe this world would be a better place. It may be. Stoked on science. Providing engaging, educational and fun programs across the Columbia Basin. Is your school or organisation looking to develop your environmental programming? Connect your outdoor time more deeply to the curriculum or engage your students or teachers with unique programs that go beyond the basic science topics like delving into the history of the earth, how it's changed and where it's going. If so, visit www.stoked.com 
onscience.com to connect for environmental education consulting or to book programs for your K-12 and adult professional development courses. So future directions of your work, do you have another book on the way by any chance? I think it'd be cool to do a book about the pathways. So I think we're going to try to work on that. Nice. Um, Because the one that we've created here is sort of specific to the Peterborough region, but the principles hold true. So maybe like to write a book along with the other people like Kathy Duick, who helped to create the pathways to make it more accessible to a broader complement people across the country in other jurisdictions. Well, we will certainly stay tuned for that. <laughs> I want, yes, please. Yeah, sign me up. I have to get writing. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yes, you just have to do that thing, right, where, you, thing. Uh, where you actually yeah. start. Mm. The labor. <laughs> Which, uh, yeah, can, anyway. So before we finish up, are there just any absolutely vital pieces of advice that you would share with, you know, anyone who educates, teaches, raises kids, Advice for nature-based connection. Redeem this very day. Go outside. Take your family. Take your kids. Yeah. Just find a place to plunk down. Open up all your senses. Smell deeply. What is the smell of this place? Reach down and grab some soil to feel to your face. What does that soil smell like? Listen to the natural sounds around you. Can you distinguish those different sounds between the oaks, the maples, the whatever trees are there? Does your place have a taste? Can you taste it on your tongue? Can you taste the water? Activate all your senses at the same time. So you feel, you literally feel that you're part of that place. And in part of that, being part of that place, maybe, maybe you'll take on a bit of responsibility for taking care of it. I will certainly heed that advice. And hopefully our listeners do as well. As someone who's utilized your books and now speaking to you in person, the things that come out through there are clearly resonating with me as an educator and I feel like they are incredibly accessible for anybody whether you already have a connection to nature or whether you're just starting out and perhaps are in a place where you're not sure about going outside or you feel like you don't have the skills or expertise and I think that's one of the the most beautiful things about your work is that it's so inclusive whether that's actually covering all different types of species and areas in the big book of nature activities or creating activities that are accessible for lots of people without any other equipment in the book of nature connection i just it deeply connects and now listening to you speak i think okay <laughs> i see it, it's so true and so honest and heartwarming to connect with that space so thank you for all of your work oh my great pleasure and if i can help people feel just a bit more connected to nature then, then i'll be happy and we've got to keep this momentum up where mm -hmm. people spent more time outside because it was safer and, and whatever and we just got to keep giving people the opportunities to do that and embedding it into our practice as humans only a few steps away through the door that's it and it doesn't have to be a you know, vast wilderness in order for it no. to be nature, right? No. no, you can bring nature home. You can just take a little corner of your yard and let it rewild. You can put planter boxes, you can create pollinator gardens, put up bird feeders. Just small little acts like that will bring nature home, bring nature to you. And you'll be engaged in regeneration. And that's the word we need now more than ever. Regeneration. Regeneration. And on that note, I'm going to take that with me. I just want to say thank you so much for your time and your energy and your expertise. You know, I was taking notes as well. And 
we look forward to sharing your books with the world. So the Big Book of Nature Activities and the Book of Nature Connection are available on our non-profit outdoor learning store and I'm sure other places, but and you can check out Jacob's work online too. And yeah, go and have a look and get more connected. Well, thanks so much for the opportunity and all those wonderful questions. You made me think. That's what we try to do. Well, all the best to you both. Oh, thanks, Jacob. Thank thanks. Thank you so much for joining us for this month's Earthy Chat. You can find the resources featured in this podcast at the Outdoor Learning Store. That's www.outdoorlearningstore.ca. You can also visit greenteacher.com for incredible educational resources and webinars. And Seabean, that's C-B-E-E-N.org for a range of environmental resources, including professional development opportunities, grant information, and green jobs. Lastly, you can visit www.stokedonscience.com to chat with me, Jade, about science workshops or educational consulting. Tune in next month for more cross-pollination of ideas and another fun, earthy chat. the wrap okay before the hour mark oh my goodness i mean we could have gone i could literally just listen to you speak forever and um, oh yeah i think we might have to see if we can get you for a workshop as well because that was very uh, enlightening Um, fun to showcase some of the activities so ever that's appropriate i could uh i've done that before where i actually take a walk and uh, people come with me and i do some things some of the activities for the book